Numerous literary sources are echoed in Wordsworth's own verse. His literary conception of nature can, in fact, be seen to develop from a particular strain of writing on the subject that evolved during the Enlightenment period. The neoclassical emphasis of this strain on universality, reason, formal balance and simplicity, all elements which would be picked up by Wordsworth, was typically Enlightenment in form. Its movement towards less conscious, quasi-romantic forms of response to the spiritual and the sublime in nature would also be highly influential. Three 18th century poets, out of many influences, are particularly significant in this respect. They are James Thompson, James Beattie and William Cooper. Noticeably absent, though, is the long-established dialect tradition of Lake's vernacular writing. Thompson is perhaps the greatest nature poet of the 18th century, the seasons representing, as Wordsworth held, his highest genius as an imaginative poet. Indeed, Wordsworth held that Thompson was responsible for bringing nature back to poetry after nearly a century. The poem, with each of its four long sections devoted to a season, was first published between 1726 and 1730, its appeal to Wordsworth lay in Thompson's vision of the unity of the natural and the human world, the so-called one life. In the 1780s and 90s, Wordsworth would also have shared Thompson's view that the natural world was vitalised by God, a sentiment which pervades descriptive sketches. Both poets would displace spiritual experience into the natural world. Listen to the following reading from Spring, dealing with the vital effect of the season on the natural world. This is a passage at which Wordsworth remarked, Any well-used copy of the seasons generally opens of itself. Inspiring God, who boundless spirit all and unremitting energy, pervades, adjusts, sustains and agitates the whole. He ceaseless works alone, and yet alone seems not to work, with such perfection framed is this complex, stupendous scheme of things. But, though concealed, to every purer eye the informing author in his works appears. Chief, lovely spring, in thee and thy soft scenes the smiling God is seen, while water, earth and air attest his bounty, which exalts the brute creation to this finer thought, and annual melts their undesigning hearts profusely thus in tenderness and joy. Still let my song a nobler note assume, and sing the infusive force of spring on man, when heaven and earth, as if contending, vie to raise his being and serene his soul. Can he forbear to join the general smile of nature? The elevated rhetoric of the lines compacts religious enthusiasm with a sense of the cyclical power of the natural sublime. God is seen actively working through spring. Likewise... In the prelude and other works from the late 1790s onwards, Wordsworth celebrates the existence of a vital spirit that underlies all creative life. It would be his task to extend Thompson to make nature poetry reflect the active part the imagination plays in shaping the world. The evolution would be from Thompson's mechanical, universal soul to what he called the wisdom and spirit of the universe, which would actively intertwine nature and thought. If Thompson's The Seasons gave Wordsworth a poetic view of nature from the outside, then James Beattie's The Minstrel, dating from the early 1770s, gave him a poetic persona structured from within nature. 
Dorothy Wordsworth's comment on the similarity of Edwin, the youthful hero of the minstrel, to her young brother is instructive. Both figures actively sought out nature and solitude. Both also discover something more than just aesthetic value in nature. There is no doubt anyway that Beattie's Scottish creation provided an inspirational model for Wordsworth in the fraught years that followed his return from France in 1792. The link between nature and autobiography in The Minstrel is a prominent one. Beattie made no secret of the fact that Edwin had been created from his own experiences and represented his developing poetic sensibilities. You may remember that the subtitle of the prelude is The Growth of a Poet's Mind. Beattie's The Minstrel is subtitled The Progress of Genius, making the two works very similar in intention at least. Each contains a self-exploratory impulse frequently linked to a passionate commitment to the value of natural scenery. Here is a reading of three stanzas from Book One of The Minstrel. Lo, where the stripling, wrapped in wonder, roves beneath the precipice o'erhung with pine, and sees on high amidst the encircling groves, from cliff to cliff the foaming torrents shine, while waters, woods and winds in concert join and echo swells the chorus to the skies. Would Edwin this majestic scene resign for aught the huntsman's puny craft supplies? Ah, no, he better knows great nature's charms to prize. And oft he traced the uplands to survey, when o'er the sky advanced the kindling dawn, the crimson cloud, blue mane and mountain grey, and lake dim gleaming on the smoky lawn. Far to the west the long, long vale withdrawn, where twilight loves to linger for a while. And now he faintly kens the bounding fawn, and villager abroad at early toil. But lo, the sun appears, and heaven, earth, ocean smile. And oft the craggy cliff he loved to climb, when all in mist the world below was lost. What dreadful pleasure there to stand sublime, like shipwrecked mariner on desert coast and view the enormous waste of vapour tossed in billows lengthening to the horizon round, now scooped in gulfs with mountains now embossed, and hear the voice of mirth and song rebound, flocks, herds and waterfalls along the hoar profound. There are direct picturesque similarities between this last stanza and a similar scene in Wordsworth's descriptive sketches, where, in a lengthy passage we read, that a mighty waste of mist the valley fills, a solemn sea whose vales and mountains round stand motionless. Neither poet draws any philosophical conclusion from the scene. It remains just that, a scene, with distinct overtones of the biblical deluge. However, in Book 13 of the 1805 prelude, the image appears yet again, this time in Wordsworth's description of a night ascent of Snowdon, here, the huge sea of mist, as he describes it, is an animated present. It represents... The perfect image of a mighty mind, of one that feeds upon infinity, that is exalted by an under-presence, the sense of God, or whatsoever is dim or vast in its own being. Above all, one function of such a mind had nature there exhibited by putting forth, and that with circumstance most awful and sublime. This is typically Wordsworthian. A visible scene has become saturated in non-objective meaning. Arguably, though, without Beattie, the narrator here might have been a very different presence in the landscape. 
In the stanzas we have just heard from the minstrel, for example, it is evident that Edwin is responding instinctively to a moral force that runs through the visible scene. Such a force was quite new in the poetry of the time. For one thing, it contrasted directly the positive educative value of natural scenes with the vanity and superficiality of the modern world. Running through the minstrel and linked to this last point is Beattie's belief that rural life affords its population greater moral and social benefits than urban existence. Nature forms a rustic taste so nice, he writes in his poem. Often held to be a tenet of the Romantics, this was in fact part of a wider Enlightenment cult of simplicity. Such a doctrine was firmly held by Wordsworth and forms the ideological framework to his lyrical ballads, he maintains in a prose preface to the poems that, in rustic life, as he phrases it, the passions of men are incorporated with the beautiful and permanent forms of nature. Finally, in this survey of influences that shaped Wordsworth's response to the natural world, we will turn to William Cooper. Wordsworth's Cooper is the poet of the task of 1785, rather than that of the earlier Olney hymns, but one of the tasks would be an early and abiding influence on Wordsworth, in this book, Cooper outlines his boyhood experiences of the natural world and his growing love of nature. He also meditates at length on the value of these experiences, showing Wordsworth how a certain form of autobiography involving nature could feed poetry. This is something that would bear on much of Wordsworth's mature writing. There are obvious differences between the gentle southern English landscapes of the task and the sublimities of Wordsworth's Lake District mountains, both poets, however, use a powerful form of naturalising discourse. Both foreground the importance of nature and memory in developing self-consciousness, and both stress the importance of individual perception. Here is a reading from Book One of The Task. The first section refers to boyhood, the second to the more recent present, and to walks Cooper would take with his friend Mary Unwin near the River Ouse. Note the change of tone after the pause which separates these two sections. For I have loved the rural walk through lanes of grassy swarth, close-cropped by nibbling sheep, and skirted thick with intertexture firm of thorny boughs. Have loved the rural walk o'er hills, through valleys and by rivers' brink. Ere since a truant boy I passed my bounds to enjoy a ramble on the banks of Thames. And still remember, nor without regret of hours that sorrow since has much endeared, how oft my slice of pocket store consumed, still hungering, penniless, and far from home, I fed on scarlet hips and stony haws, or blushing crabs, or berries that embossed the bramble, black as jet, or sloes or steer. How oft upon yon eminence our pace has slackened to a pause, and we have borne the ruffling wind scarce conscious that it blew, while admiration feeding at the eye, and still unsated, dwelt upon the scene. Thence with what pleasure have we just discerned the distant plough slow-moving, and beside his labouring team that swerved not from the track, the sturdy swain diminished to a boy. The second section, even though it views a scene from a present perspective, is contemplative in the way it links landscape and memory. You might have noted throughout correspondences with an evening walk. The focus on boyhood and memory, even down to the tone of the narrative voice, is similar, Parallels might also be seen in the way that Cooper lays out his landscape in the poem, especially the latter passage. The formal arrangement accords with the scenic organisation of the picturesque. It is ordered, balanced and highly visual. 
There is, though, a much stronger narrative presence in the landscape of Cooper's poem than in An Evening Walk, something that would undergo dramatic change before Wordsworth came to write There Was a Boy. In fact, the task contains a central tension between idealised picturesque landscapes and the mind of the poet. Wordsworth would ultimately reconcile the two. What Coleridge called the divine chit-chat of Cooper would eventually become, in Wordsworth, a heightened perception of everyday experience of the sublime in nature. It is perhaps evident from this discussion that, with Wordsworth, nature would play a functional role in human development. Intensely felt experiences of the natural world would, he maintained, crystallise in spiritually regenerating memories, what he called spots of time, in the prelude. The poet's role would be to redeem, as he phrases it, the beauty and dignity of the human mind which lies latent in these episodes. Drawing on external nature, the poet would stand as a defender of all that was best in human nature. How exquisitely Wordsworth writes in Home at Grasmere, the individual mind to the external world is fitted, and how exquisitely too the external world is fitted to the mind. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.